0: Hello and welcome to Spy Hards Podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we are here with a very, very
1: exciting Spy Masked interview and one hell of a guest. Yes, we are talking today to Jeff Kleeman, who in the early 90s became the executive vice president of production at MGM and United Artists and played a key, key role in launching the Brosnan era. And worked heavily on Goldeneye, Tomorrow Never Dies, and The World Is Not Enough.
0: Yeah, I mean, you just look at the creative forces behind that time in Bond. It had really fallen to the family of Cubby Broccoli, Barbara Broccoli, and Michael G. Wilson at that point. But what a lot of people don't remember is that there was another person in the room with them, which is Jeff Kleeman. He was part of the decision-making process, moving on from Timothy Dalton, all the big decisions for Pierce Brosnan, and we talk about them and much more. I can't wait for you all to hear it.
1: Cam? We cover the Bond films so regularly, but the odds of us ever having Barbara Broccoli or Michael G. Wilson on the show, those odds are fairly slim most likely, especially for like the kind of deep dive interviews that we like to do. Mm -hmm. So like this is very much going to be probably the closest we can ever give you to a kind of inside eon during the production of the Bond films. And we're very proud of this one. And guys, strap yourselves in for a ride. That's right, Cam. Folks, pour yourself a shaken martini,
0: strap yourselves in and enjoy our chat with Mr. Jeff Kleeman. And joining us now on the show, a man with credits to his name, such as Goldeneye, Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, The Hunt for Red October, the man from Uncle. He is a writer, a producer, a CEO. He is Mr. Jeff Kleeman. Hello, sir. How are you? Hi, I'm
2: well. You?
0: I'm living the dream, sir. Uh, all the better for having you here, and I—I I think we've got a lot of fascinating films to cover. Because you know, reading about some of the stuff you've worked on over the years is enthralling. Going through some of the bits I've read in some books and online, and I kind of want to dive into multiple films at once, but I need to focus here. And I think what people want to hear about first is—is is your connection to the world of James Bond. So I've got you down as working for MGM United Artists as an executive vice president of production. So how did that come about for you? And where did that journey start?
2: Well, my journey with James Bond, I think, began probably similarly to many people's journeys, which is I saw my first Bond movie in the theaters, which at that time was Live and Let Die, and was obsessed instantly. I read Roger Moore's James Bond Diary, which was a tie-in with Live and Let Die following that. Mm -hmm. I started to read the Ian Fleming books. I saw every subsequent Bond movie when it came out. And in 1990, just make sure I'm getting my dates correct here. Yes, in 1993, I was working with Francis Coppola. And Francis had an overall deal at Sony. He had just done Dracula for them. Hmm. for various reasons francis decided not to renew his deal but to spend more time up in northern california and the executive at sony a man named gareth wiggum who had overseen our deal the zoetrope deal francis's deal asked me if i knew a man named john calley now i didn't know john calley but i'd heard a lot about john calley john had been a legendary producer He had run Warner Brothers. He had been responsible for many of the Kubrick films there, Dirty Harry, Never Say Never Again in terms of a Bond connection. And he had retired from the film business. And as I was to later learn, moved to an island for pretty much the last, I think, seven, eight years. But he was now coming out of retirement to take over MGMUA. And Gareth suggested that I should meet with John. He thought we'd get along. So I went and I met with John, and we did get along. And John offered me a job. And for me, part of the allure, and I said it in our first meeting, of working at MGM UA was the possibility of getting to work on a James Bond movie, which they, there are many reasons I entered the film and television business, really working on movies and TV was truly a childhood dream but if you really want to get very specific there were certain movies or certain people who were the ultimate version of that and james bond was right at the top mm. so I, I went to work at MGM UA, and john also equally was a huge fan of the bond films that's why he had made never say never again and both of us were really excited that cubby and barbara and michael cubby Broccoli, barbara brockley michael wilson who at that point were the keepers of the bond franchise were still interested in making a bond film in fact they developed a script with michael france that was intended to be GoldenEye, but it was to a large degree in limbo and what john and i then went on to discover was that For the powers that be at MGM, UA weren't as enthusiastic about Bond as we were. And they had good reason, to be fair to them. The Dalton movies were not tremendous successes. I I believe Octopussy was the last true blockbuster Bond film in terms of success. And it had actually been a while, even since the Dalton movies. So there was this fear that Bond was old news that bond felt frankly like a relic so they did a market research study to see what the interest across america was in james bond and another james bond movie and much to their despair it came back that essentially every teenage boy in america either said who's james bond or oh i know who that is that's that guy our dad likes Mm which from a let's go make big blockbuster movies marketing perspective is the kiss of death nonetheless john and i remained passionate we remained convinced (laughs) and and i should just backtrack here in case you don't do the math in your head the reason teenage boys had that reaction is many of them weren't born when octopussy came out and for most of them there hadn't really been a significant bond movie in their lives to go to at mm. the age when most of us went to our first bond movie so for them it really was some archaeological hero that their dad liked and they might have heard of him vaguely we um we kept pushing and eventually it was agreed that we could try to put a Bond film together. And that was really the beginning of the journey toward getting GoldenEye into the theaters.
1: And I fall like kind of right into that generation. I was born in 1980, and I grew up with James Bond. And for me, you had that big gap between License to Kill and GoldenEye. And so I would have been nine or eight, I think, when License to Kill came out. Not a movie appropriate for eight-year-olds. So I was part of that, not seeing these movies in theaters. But I'm curious when you're coming in, in a sense, you're coming in as a bit of a problem solver to deal with this franchise to kind of get it back on track. When you're looking at the um, Dalton films, like what are the issues? What needs to be kind of changed to move forward?
2: Well, so for my part, and I can only speak for myself personally, Mm -hmm. and by the time I got to MGMUA, I should also say I'd had a little experience with franchises. Not only had I worked on Hunt for October, which was the beginning of a franchise but also worked on star trek six which was an attempt to bring the star trek franchise back after star trek five which wasn't considered a particularly successful star trek movie and um that's a whole other story although it, it does link up with bond in its own way in terms of the dalton movies i didn't particularly like them mm-hmm. as a bond fan and That doesn't mean I still wouldn't watch them multiple times, because for me, even the lesser James Bonds are still better than a lot of other movies around, but they weren't my favorite. And maybe some of it goes back to an interview that I once read that Raymond Chandler did with Ian Fleming. And it was a really interesting interview. I mean, just the idea of Raymond Chandler and Ian Fleming having a conversation <laughs> is interesting. But in the interview, at a certain point, Chandler points out that in every book, Bond is tortured and really brutally tortured. And he asked Fleming, Why do you do that? Why do you do that in every single one of these books? And Fleming says, in essence, because I want to write a book write books in which James Bond lives the most amazing life, a life that anybody would envy, where he has incredible amounts of pleasure but he also has to pay a price for that and the torture is the price he pays. If he wasn't tortured, the audience wouldn't go along for the ride with him but at the same time I don't want the torture to be the ride and i feel like the dalton movies veered a little more towards a joyless bond as opposed to the bond who really can appreciate pleasure and enjoy the hedonism of james bond's life but has to pay a price for it and again this is personal taste and you see it in golden eye and you see it in tomorrow never dies world is not enough is a whole other thing but for me the perfect balance of bond is not let's call it the camp of late roger moore or even the mm-hmm. or the camp of bond with an invisible car and you know later pierce brosnan nor is it frankly the bond paired down to aggression and angst that you get a sort of a whiff of with dalton and you get in some daniel craig movies it is much more this probably variation on a Connery Bond where you get the sense that he really is delighted by his life, but he's also can be serious, but without being solemn. Mm. And for me, that that was really the bullseye for Bond to hit tonally that I didn't feel the Dalton movies always hit. I also just didn't, from a plot level, I didn't find them as interesting as I wanted them to be. There was a, again, I don't like a completely unrealistic Bond movie, but it almost mm-hmm. felt like the Dalton the movies were trying to get closer to a level of realism that made Bond slightly more generic in terms of plotting than I personally enjoy Bond films to be. Uh, I, I like Goldfinger wanting to rob Fort Knox. And, <laughs> or not rob it, but irradiate you know, and, and it, it, it is, I, I expect my Bond films to sort of surprise me a little bit with their
0: plots. So you're getting this sort of mandate then. You're coming in and you've agreed that the, the Dalton films aren't necessarily working. What's that first step now that it's been signed off that you're going to try and and try and bring Bond back? What's that first step for you as, as an executive? Is it casting? Is that the first step? Is it speaking with the Broccolis? What, what do you, where do you go from there, basically?
2: It's it's not so much a first step as it's a simultaneous step.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You need a script. You need a Bond. You need a director. And for any given movie, you need all three to coincide with the right timing. Yeah, you can have a great script, but if the actor you want to play Bond isn't available, then you've got a problem. Or you can have your actor available, but you have no script to shoot and no director. That's a problem. So there's no... So you proceed along all three fronts simultaneously. There was this Michael France script. I cannot speak for Barbara, Michael, and Cubby. I really don't remember what their opinions of it were. John and I weren't thrilled by it.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. We, We felt it needed a lot of work. So step one was really a general conversation with Barbara, Michael, and Cubby about the story and the plot and what this movie needed to do and how he wanted to do it one of the other reasons mgmua was not thrilled about making a bond film was they felt that bond and bond movies themselves were in old-fashioned that action movies spy movies had taken on a different approach to storytelling frankly a cinema than bond movies did and that they were concerned that it would feel musty mm-hmm. john and i had to some degree the opposite belief we believed that what we liked in james bond was not tied to a particular period but was a kind of basic human emotional response and that if we could lean into call it classic bond but take classic bond and make it feel contemporary make it feel as though bond could genuinely exist in 1995 then we would be giving the audience something that was fresh something that was so distinct from all the other action movies out there in the moment that they would find it exciting and they would hopefully line up at the box office to go see it so a lot of the initial work around the script was deciding that that was the approach and then trying to figure out how to lean into that. In terms of the casting, we had a bunch of things happening. One was Barbara, Michael, and Cubby very much wanted Timothy Dalton to return as Bond. Mm-hmm. And john Kelly and i really liked timothy dalton we liked him as an actor we liked him as a person but we didn't particularly want him to return as bond one was we didn't want to send the signal that this was by the time the movie came out and i may have my dates off so i'm going to approximate here the bond of 10 years ago as opposed to the bond of today and the other was we did want to tonally shift the movies a little bit away from the Dalton movies. And we felt that if you were a real Bond fan and you tried to find some continuity with the character we were hoping to put on screen versus the way Dalton had been playing him in the previous movies, it might feel jarring. So we looked at a lot of people and there is there there are logistical issues you have to take into account when you're starting a franchise or putting an actor into a franchise the first is do they have other franchises this was before Mel Gibson's fall from grace and a lot of people were pitching Mel Gibson to us Mel probably would have been a very interesting bond but he had other franchises going at that point Mm -hmm. so if GoldenEye was successful and we want to make another one a year later and another one a year later There's a scheduling problem. Now we are having to compete with all of his other movies. The second question is, how much do you want to spend in assuming that with each movie, there'll be an escalation in fee? So I think at that point, and we'll use Mel Gibson as an example again, because he's a good one. I think Mel Gibson was getting $20 million a movie. So let's say we paid Mel Gibson $20 million for GoldenEye. And that was successful what would we have to pay him for the second and what would we have to pay him for the third
1: yeah yeah
2: which really meant we need to find an actor who we have enough faith because of his prior work can really deliver as bond ideally someone who's a member of the commonwealth uh you know bond actors don't have to be true british british but Scottish, Irish, Australian, somewhere in that commonwealth area, it d- did feel like the sweet spot.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And someone who was old enough to feel like they were substantial and ex- and yet not so old that we couldn't make movies for the next 10 or 15 years with them and you still believe them as being able to play James Bond. Mm-hmm some were a lot around, as we were doing a lot of casting and meeting with a lot of actors and there were a lot of people we were considering and a lot of them were great choices um i had just been working on a movie called rob roy with liam neeson and michael caden jones liam was interested in doing it if michael was going to direct so it was sort of a package deal it, we mm. talked to ray fines about it who of course later would become m and yeah, that, yeah, there, there were, there were a lot of great actors around, and we talked to a lot of them. We heard from Pierce's reps that he was interested, and we, of course, knew the story of Pierce being originally Cubby's choice to play Bond prior to going to Dalton, mm. and we met with Pierce, and Pierce was great, just loved him, and he walked in the room, and he really felt like the jump from who he was as he in that room to being bond felt like such an easy jump.
3: Mm.
2: Again from MGM senior management perspective Pierce was not an ideal choice because even though at one moment pre or during Remington Steel he had been sort of very exciting for bond, Remington Steel was now a thing of the past. And at this point Pierce was playing second fiddle to Robin Williams and Mrs. Doubtfire and Warren Beatty and Love Affair. So from the MGM Truly higher ups, they were saying, "Okay, so you want to resurrect this franchise with a character that no teenage boy cares about. And you want to use an actor who was at one point a big deal in TV, but now is essentially a supporting actor straight man to Robin Williams and Warren Beatty as Bond. And we said, yes, that's what we want to do. Meanwhile, we're also searching for a director. And we end up seeing before it was released a cut of Martin Campbell's movie No Escape Mm -hmm. which I can't tell you we thought it was a spectacular movie because we didn't. But what we did think was that it was a well executed movie and it got an astonishing amount on screen for what was a very small budget. It felt much, much bigger than its budget. And what we knew at already was we were going to have very little money to make golden eye with more importantly what we had seen was martin's original version of edge of darkness his british miniseries which we loved and we had also seen um some of a series that he had worked on called riley ace of spies which we also loved and martin was very smart and very passionate when we met with him so for us, it was this combination of, he did this brilliant work in British television that was spot on in our minds for Bond. And he knew re- how to really stretch his budget and make it look great on screen. Unfortunately, he'd also had two other movies that he made features. One was called Criminal Law, one was called Defenseless. They were flops. No Escape came out. It was a flop. So now we're going to MGM and we're saying, we don't have a script we love yet, we have an actor you've heard about. We have a director who's made three features, none of which have worked. But we really want to make a James Bond movie, can we? <laughs> I, and, and I think what nobody really re- understands in retrospect is how unlikely it was that GoldenEye got made in the first place, because it was more likely not to get made than made, particularly under these circumstances in this way.
0: I, I think it, it definitely wouldn't happen now. Oh from, no. Like, from what I know, like it this is a this is a uh, very rare occurrence for the 90s. But yeah, now this would never happen.
2: I think it only happened because Frank Mancuso who was the chairman of MGM really trusted John Kelly and I had actually worked for Frank at Paramount. Um that when I was doing Hunt for Red October and Star Trek 6 and others other films and I had a really good relationship with Frank. And between his belief in john and his fondness for me he ultimately agreed to give us 49 million dollars to go make the movie with now that sounds low today and sometimes you might wonder well in 1994 dollars is 49 million really the equivalent to 100 or 150 million it isn't by this point we were already in the era of the 100 million plus action movies in fact, there was a belief amongst a lot of studios that the only way to ensure a movie would be successful was to spend at least $100 million on it and give it the real sense of spectacle. And to put it in contrast with another movie I was working on at the same time, The Birdcage, which for all purposes was six people in a room talking, our budget for Birdcage was $60 million. So, So, wow. yeah, we spent more making The Birdcage by the way, it was a good bet. The Birdcage was a spectacular movie, and I'm incredibly proud of it. And it did very, very well for the studio. So that that was fine. Hmm. But Goldeneye at 49 million was it was really Frank Mancuso giving us a shot, but not big shot.
1: Was there ever a point where there was discussions about because this is in the wake of like Jurassic Park and Terminator 2? about basically taking the Bond thing and just blowing it up, doing a $100 million kind of project with movie stars and completely revising what a James Bond project is?
2: There wasn't, because not only were it was there tremendous doubt about whether there was an audience for Bond, but equally or there was that problem of you put a movie star in it, how do you make a second one and a third one and a fourth one? Also remember, while Cubby was present, and I feel so lucky to have had a chance to meet Cubby and spend time with Cubby. Cubby wasn't doing well. Mm-hmm. So his stepson and his daughter, Michael Wilson and Barbara Rockley, they were the ones who were really going to spearhead the production. And while they had grown up on Bond sets and making Bond movies, neither of them had ever gone and produced a movie, let alone a Bond movie on their own. So to add to this mix that we're presenting and we're asking for is, well, and by the way, we will essentially have first-time sole producers Mm. who have tremendous amount of control because the Bond deal goes back to the 1960s when United Artists was as much of a distribution company as it was a true studio. And it has controls in it that go beyond anything that any producer could possibly get today but it is the deal that mgmua had so there was also having to put a lot of trust in barbara and michael who were unknown entities in terms of making a bond film at the time
0: and that was actually leading into a question i had about sort of the the dynamic and the sort of power between mgmua barbara Broccoli, michael g wilson where is the final decision on things like casting director's script? Where is that coming down? Is that yourselves or is that with them? Who gets that last sort of yes and no?
2: There isn't so much a last yes or no. There is a, we can't do this unless we're doing it all together. Mm. Barbara and Michael can't go off and make a Bond movie without MGM UA. MGM UA can't go and make a Bond movie without Barbara and Michael. So you've got to figure out a way to work it out on the room with the choice hot choice of pierce there was a meeting in john Kelly's office with cubby barbara michael john Kelly, and myself and we talked it through and barbara and michael i think it was actually mainly barbara made the case for timothy and john and i made the case for pierce and in my memory I, I hope it my memory is accurate here because i i i love what i can still picture in my mind cubby had a walking stick and after a couple of moments of silence cubby just sort of gently tapped his stick on the floor and said pierce it is <laughs> and we were off and running but everything pretty much worked out that way i for most of my tenure on the bond films when we were in pre-production would spend The majority of my time in London, and certainly during production as well. And every day I would go to the Eon offices, and Barbara and Michael and I would sit in a room and we would talk things through. Sometimes we would argue things, sometimes we'd be shouting. But at the end of the day, and I mean literally the end of the day, usually around four or five in the afternoon, Barbara would go to a little bar area, ask all of us what we wanted to drink. We would have a glass of this or that, and sometimes go out to dinner following. And the next morning we would come back and start fresh and happy and friendly all over again. And I I've got to say one of the most important lessons I learned in business and maybe in life, I learned from Barbara and Michael, which is because I was lucky enough to be in the room with them. Mm. Barbara and Michael don't always agree. No two siblings ever always agree and in many ways the things that barbara likes best about bond or enjoys most about bond are different from things michael enjoys most about bond so there would sometimes be some element that they would really argue over between themselves but when it came time to present to the studio or to present to an actor, or a director, or a writer, or any out, anybody outside of that room, they always spoke with one voice. And you would never know there'd been any disagreement between them, or w- how one felt versus the other felt. And for me, one of the things that made those three films so magical, is that while there was this very, power dynamics, almost the wrong word, but It was an unusual relationship between producers and studio. What There was also a kind of safety, which is I knew that the three of us could say or argue or take stances with each other. But when ultimately we came to a decision, it would always be presented in a way that nobody would ever feel like they had lost out or nobody would ever know publicly have to defend why they felt one way or the other way. It was always one voice.
1: And when it came to like some of the creative decisions, because this is a big movie. You're basically trying to revitalize a brand. What were like the biggest hurdles or the biggest kind of debates when it came to kind of reimagining Bond for the nineties?
2: Well there were a lot. And and maybe the first, and it gets to your you know, was it there ever the big blowout version? When we started to meet with directors, we heard a lot of different pitches and the most interesting was roland emmerich who came in saying that he wanted to do um bond but he wanted to set it in the 60s and shoot it and make it look like a true connery movie and you know let bond exist in the world of the 60s as opposed to the world of the 90s where as we were already keenly aware There are some cultural difficulties with Bond in the 1990s. And Roland's approach not only solved the cultural difficulties to some degree. You still, for our 1990s audience, don't want to ignore those things. But it also solved that question of Bond looking and feeling different from the kinds of action movies that were currently being made in the 90s. Um, that being said, his version would have been really expensive, n- making that whole thing period 60s fun. I- I'm kind of curious in an alternate universe what that would have turned out like. But it it was something that we debated a lot. And it was something that we were working on all the way through this, um, the screenplay phase, pretty much up until the start of production. And then it was, it was also something that happened throughout production. One of the things that I've come to appreciate as part of Martin Campbell's genius is when we were shooting with Pierce, Martin really spent a lot of time thinking about what Pierce's, to his mind, strengths and weaknesses were and how to play to those. And this could be verbally. It could be in terms of movement. It could be in terms of camera angles and, you know, um size of shots. He um he intensely scrutinized Pierce. and Pierce had some mannerisms Martin would police Pierce from using. He had other things he encouraged to lean into. He had a real integral role in shaping. What you think of as the Pierce Brosnan take on Bond, he he basically created that playbook. The other person who had an integral role, in that was Bruce Fierstein, but um, I'm sure we'll get to him in a bit. The reason I say it's an unappreciated part of Martin's genius is I was no longer involved when Casino Royale came around, mm-hmm. but I was still friendly with everybody, and at A certain point, I know, prior to the decision to hire Daniel Craig, when it it sort of, in Martin's mind, was getting down to Daniel Craig versus Clive Owen. And this was coming off of Croupier, where Clive Owen did feel like James Bond. And Martin knew, and he'd worked with Clive, I think, at this point. He knew exactly, in his mind, what he would need to do to make Clive Owen Bond. He wasn't sure, prior to the decision to hire Daniel Craig, exactly how he would approach a Daniel Craig version of Bond. But once it was decided that it was going to be Daniel Craig, the thing Martin knew was his playbook for Pierce couldn't be the same playbook for Daniel Craig, that they were physically, character-wise, personality-wise, vocally, and in it pretty much every way different. Mm-hmm. And the way with Casino Royale, he reapproached everything, including the ways he shot it versus the way he shot Goldeneye, to tailor it to Daniel Craig and to, in essence, create or at least launch what becomes the Daniel Craig version of Bond. I think it's just brilliant.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, the man has been incredibly lucky and I guess skilled at launching Bonds. It's- yeah the good luck charm yeah
2: yeah i think i think i really think it's more skill than luck um because mm. i I've, I've been able to spend enough time with him mm-hmm. during the initial stages of the process to know how much work he put into it th- this was not fly by the seat of his pants this was a lot of hard thinking
1: mm-hmm. and you know you mentioned bruce uh, firestein mm-hmm. who sticks around with the franchise for 3 movies what was it that he brought that was so vital because it seems like and we've talked to Jeffrey Kane, who worked on Goldeneye, and it obviously went through a few iterations. What was it that Bruce Feierstein, though, understood about Bond that was so effective?
2: So there were a number of writers who worked on Goldeneye. Um, and there was Jeffrey Kane was a very important figure in Goldeneye. There were also a few other writers who preceded Jeffrey Kane, but and between Michael France and Jeffrey Kane. But Jeffrey Kane, I would say, was the one who got us closest to what was the movie you were going to make. And we were really struggling with the script. We actually had a start date for GoldenEye and and we got close to it and we still didn't feel that the script was close enough. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna claim perfect because I'm not sure there is such a thing as a perfect script but it wasn't close enough. And so we postponed our start date by six months to give us more time to work on the script. This, again, is the advantage when you don't have a, at that time, giant movie star or a giant big name director. You can get everybody to push six months, Mm. which we did. During that six month time, Barbara said, there's this guy, Bruce Fierstein. He coined the phrase and wrote the book, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. Uh, he also was in advertising, and I believe he coined the phrase "the ultimate driving machine" for BMW. He uh, mm. wrote for Spy magazine. He had a regular column in the New York Observer, and really witty, really funny. But in essence, a comedy writer—a you know, a sharp, journalistic, literate comedy
3: writer—and
2: mm-hmm. Barbara said. We're we're getting close with the structure, but we're kind of missing any real James Bond wit. What if we just pay Bruce a little money because he has no real quotes, you know, as a feature writer, and see if he can give us a few good lines that we can use in the script? So Sure. Sounds good. It's an experiment. Why not? Let's see what happens. Nothing to lose. I don't know if Bond exists today without... Barbara having made that suggestion, because Bruce came in and ultimately, to a large degree, rewrote the entire script. He created the voice of the Pierce Brosnan Bond. It was Bruce who had the idea to turn M into a woman. It was Bruce who said, because we were wrestling with the culture issue, Mm. Bruce who said, the only way you can keep Bond. Essentially, as sexist as he is, is to have a woman in genuine authority who can call him out on it. Mm. And he created the Judy Dench M character, which we were both inc- really excited by once he pitched it, and then once he started writing, you know, the lines like, you know, you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. If I want sarcasm, I'll get it from my children. Um, it, we we were thrilled. And when we got Judy Dench to do it, we were doubly thrilled. We were still terrified because it was such a, it was the biggest break. I think with the James Bond canon that we made with the movie and we ended up research screening the movie in Reading, just outside of London.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And after the research screening, we had this focus group and we say, what do you think of the movie? And the first comment is, I don't like that you made Emma a woman.
3: Hmm.
2: And someone else in the focus group says, but Stella Tennant, who's, I can't remember which was the head of MI5 or MI6, but the real MI5 or MI6 is a woman. Yeah. And the guy said, yeah, I don't like that either. And at that point we thought, oh, okay, we're fine. (laughs) You're
0: just one of those guys. Right. I got you. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But so... You know, Bruce really brought a lot. He ended up bringing a lot in terms of plotting as well. Uh, He truly deserved his co-screenplay by credit on the movie because he made substantial improvements to everything we already had. And that's why you see him come back again and again on the Bond movies. And it's also, I believe, not believe, I'm pretty sure, he had a hand in writing... Some stuff for Nintendo, not for the GoldenEye game, I don't think, but for the Bond games that came after the GoldenEye game. Hmm.
0: Interesting. I'm not sure I knew that. We have, we have had someone involved on those games on at the past. I might have to drop an email and check into that. But I suppose then, like looking at sort of the story of GoldenEye, we we we're here now. We've got the sort of trifecta of you've got your director, you've got your solid script, you've got Pierce. Cameras are rolling. You're running around the streets of Saint Petersburg. It's all it's all fun and games.
2: Sure, only briefly do we get to run around the streets. Oh yeah,
0: <laughs> you're kicked out pretty quickly afterwards. Um, but like that, that's maybe a story there. I mean, from your experience there, you finally got this Bond script off the ground. This is your project at MGM UA when you come here. How does that feel? And what were sort of the the obstacles you were tackling daily on the set of Goldeneye?
2: Oh, it was thrilling. I mean, I can't tell you how thrilling it was to be working on a James Bond movie, mm. and it. it yeah earlier i think i said yeah some version of boyhood dream it was a boyhood dream come true and we felt we were making a good james bond movie and when a guy named joe nimzicki created that first teaser trailer which was the you know the name you know the number and you hear the bond score Mm. we were in heaven and martin uh very early on I i should say The movie had a very long shoot it was more than 120 days we were shooting six day weeks it was again we had a 49 million dollar budget this budget ultimately did creep up for reasons like being kicked out of st petersburg but it ended up 56 million so it's not like it Mm. was a huge increase but it was a brutal shoot it was a hard shoot and some weeks in martin could sense that morale might be ebbing amongst the crew because everybody was really killing themselves. Mm. So in his off hours, I don't know how he managed to do this. He decided to cut together some of the footage that had already been shot and put a little music against it. And my memory, it was 10 minutes long. Maybe it wasn't that long. That seems insanely long to me, but (laughs) um, maybe it was. And he screened it for the whole cast and crew. And I think it included the bungee jump and a few other things. And as soon as we all saw that, it was not only are we getting to make a James Bond movie, we actually think we're going to make a James Bond movie that could work. And that is a fantastic feeling. Also, it was a shoot where everybody got along. I can't say that's the case on every movie or even every James Bond movie, but this was one where everybody did. It was tough circumstances, but we did.
0: Well, that's actually an interesting little diversion there because you mentioned that like you're getting this sort of clip back from Martin Campbell. There's a feeling that it's working, it's clicking. I'm guessing on set. Yeah. I'm guessing that's feeding upwards as well from the people that weren't sure about you doing a bomb film in the first place. I'm guessing heads are starting to turn now. They're thinking, oh, you can have an extra ten million dollars. This is, but you it, it, you must feel sort of jubilant at that point then. Like it is all clicking for you.
2: We are feeling very jubilant. Um, yeah, tremendously so which of course isn't to say there weren't those moments of oh my god st petersburg being one of them there was also there are frustrations i have never seen any movie i've ever worked on after it's come out wow uh no matter how good my memory of the production is no matter how well received i know the movie was the reason i've never seen any after it's been released really after its premiere is because all I see are the mistakes or the missed opportunities. Nobody else necessarily sees those because they don't know what was possible, but I do. And with Bond, and I was only to know this later than Goldeneye, when we got Tomorrow Never Dies greenlit and Goldeneye was a success, sometimes you get a chance to address them in the next movie. So for example, in GoldenEye, one of the things that was really bothering me, and I not just me, but some other people as well, is we gave Bond this tricked-out car.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: But we never actually used it in an action sequence. And this whole bit where Joe Don Baker fires a missile,
3: mm.
2: it was just to it was a band-aid. It was all we could afford, given our budget, to show that the car actually did something because we felt like bond should have a tricked out car. and We didn't want to relaunch bond for a new generation, a new audience without having that element in it, but we couldn't make good on it, which is why you get the car chase and tomorrow never dies in the mall where the car does, you know, 15 different things. And it was all in service of making good on one of the things in golden that was causing us despair.
1: Right. I can understand that. And I mean, it's obviously one of those big Bond tropes that people want to see. And I remember going to the theater for Goldeneye and being kind of surprised when the car was featured in such a small kind of number of scenes. But the thing about Goldeneye that's so, I think, interesting is that when it came out, like critics were, I think, nice. But like, it didn't feel like it was like a real big explosion for it. Now, Goldeneye is regarded as one of the top, usually five James Bond movies of all time. Why do you think it was that like critics didn't necessarily respond as strongly to say Knight as like a Casino Royale, for example, in 2006?
2: I haven't gone back and done the archival research. Maybe I should to know the critical response to all the previous Bond films prior to the Daniel Craig era. But mm. I would say, and also remember, you know, when we're getting, certainly they responded big to Casino Royale, but also, you know, one of the things that. Barbara Michaels started to do with the Daniel Craig movies was hire directors who are already beloved by critics, like a Sam Mendes or Carrie Fukunaga. True, yeah. Um, which, and, which I think also immediately buys you some great goodwill with critics and elevates it in their mind to a level of art that often more mainstream commercial, what's what they think of as popcorn cinema, isn't. Mm-hmm. The um, I. I've never had a conversation with a critic about Goldeneye, so I truly don't know why they responded the way they responded. I don't remember thinking that they trashed us. No, I don't remember having a bad feeling about it. What I really remember is it doing so incredibly well that suddenly it going from the uh, <clears throat> the black sheep of the MGM film slate to becoming the savior of MGM uA. And the company had to be sold in 1997. It was owned by a French bank. And because of American banking laws, uh, they had to find a buyer. Mm -hmm. So the most important thing on our plate as executives was what could we do to make MGM UA alluring to a buyer? And after GoldenEye, there was only one answer, which was get another Bond movie going, because suddenly... Bond was the thing that mattered most. And that's continued to this day with MGM UA. It, prior to GoldenEye, I don't think, I think Bond movies were helpful for MGM UA, but I don't think they were what was driving the company. Now, to a large degree, they are what drives the company. And and that was thanks to GoldenEye. Another thing that really mattered, although we didn't realize at the time how much it was going to matter, was the Nintendo video game. Yeah. Yeah. we. You know, we obviously, everybody had agreed to license the video game rights to Nintendo. Seemed fun, seemed like a nice little bit of, you know, ancillary business, but nobody paid much attention to it. It was so incredibly popular that it really supported GoldenEye. But maybe equally, if not more importantly, what ended up happening were a lot of kids who did not see Goldeneye in the theaters were at home when their older siblings were playing the video game there you go and i i am mean,
0: you, you had cam earlier as the license to kill baby i was the golden knight to of tomorrow never dies baby with the n64 game i was literally that and my four brothers that was that was it
2: it created it created a whole second audience for bond who had been too young to see Goldeneye when it was released And then for Tomorrow Never Dies onward, that audience was now a Bond audience, too, thanks to the Nintendo video game.
1: Did that surprise popularity of that game? Did that affect the way you made the movies moving forward? Like, did it have any? No, not at all.
2: No, um, we were. I I think we were so in our heads, particularly going into Tomorrow Never Dies on two things. What we, what we had believed we learned from GoldenEye, what we saw mm-hmm. as missed opportunities from GoldenEye that we want to rectify. Um, and then we had initially had no idea GoldenEye was going to be so successful that MGMUA was going to say, we must have a second Bond film by 1997. Mm-hmm. And so when that edict came down, we were unprepared. You know, it's not like we had a script that was ready to go. I, as far as we were concerned, in a perfect world, we would have had a few years to develop the next script and do pre production and make the movie. But instead, it became racing for a finish line and trying to build the car along the way. So, you know, maybe if we had a lot of time, we would have try to ask ourselves are there any lessons we can learn from the video game but uh but then it was more about well this is great this is nice that's that's real unexpected icing on the cake and uh now let's keep our eyes on the ball we got a movie to make
0: well pivoting into tomorrow never dies and that was my first question something you, you sort of briefly mentioned there was sort of lessons learned from gold now you mentioned the car pivoting that into the wonderful sequence uh, backseat driver sequence i always call it um But, like, what were sort of the lessons that you learned from GoldenEye as a studio? And what were you looking to sort of change into Tomorrow Never Dies going forward?
2: Well, what we didn't want to do was break anything that wasn't already working. And we were very happy with Pierce's bond. Mm -hmm. And we want to try to keep that tone. Pierce wanted to go more emotional with Bond than he'd been able to do in goldeneye and we wanted to figure out a way to balance that where we could let him do that because it was interesting to us i think all of us have a fondness for on her majesty's secret service Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and i personally had advocated for remaking on her majesty's secret service while i was over to MGM UA with the bonds i thought uh, um it, because it's it's not my favorite movie, but there's so many things I like about it, including Diana Rigg as Tracy. Mm-hmm. So the whole, which turned out not to be one of the best parts of Tomorrow Never Dies, but the whole Paris Carver relationship was really a nod to trying to say, how can we give Pierce something more personal to play without completely deflating the balloon? and again that wasn't as successful as we would have liked it to be but it um it it, it it was one of those things another thing was the jonathan price character so martin it was martin who'd really advocated at the end of golden eye to have this huge mano a mano fist fight between sean bean and pierce mm-hmm. and to really pare it down um you know yes we'll have the spectacle of the explosions and the fighting but really make it personal and pare it down and i don't remember who advocated initially for it being 006 versus 007 but we'd liked that too and we felt coming out of Goldeneye that this worked that the sense of a villain who is less expected as a villain, who is maybe not so much about, and again, we're talking about the 1990s and what we're seeing in other movies at the moment, coming in with a gun in each hand, shooting away or, you know, killing his henchman with a baseball bat. Mm. But, it, you know, is is sort of more elegant, more interesting, more complex. We want to find another way to get at. And so that started to lead us down the route towards Jonathan Carver. There were some routes we went down that we, um, we abandoned. We knew Once we knew the movie was coming out in 1997, and we knew that Hong Kong was being handed over to mainland China, we thought, wouldn't it be interesting to make the first James Bond movie that tied in with a historical moment? So initially, the storyline for Tomorrow Never Dies was centered around the handoff of Hong Kong to mainland China. And at a certain point, we came to the, we realized, we don't know what's going to happen when Hong Kong is handed over. Mm. We think it's going to be peaceful, but it could be mm-hmm. bloody. It could be horrible.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And if it were, and we then simultaneously have this movie coming out that's wrong, That's a real problem, which is when we pivoted away from it being about the handoff. But what you see retained in Tomorrow Never Dies is the whole idea of it being in Asia, um, in Asia-centric. And I guess in some ways, and and I don't want to hijack this whole podcast by doing it, but we could probably go through most of Tomorrow Never Dies and I could say to you how something can either grew out of a lesson learned from GoldenEye or was a reaction to GoldenEye, or because we were feeling so confident. And honestly, there was a big boost of, we were right, bond works um, mm-hmm. and bond's important. We can push the envelope and stretch him in new ways. So hiring Michelle Yeoh was stretching bond in a big way because we were hiring um, An actress to play a role which wasn't really a romantic interest in the traditional sense of the Bond girl. She doesn't look like the traditional Bond girl. And we were giving her more agency than any Bond girl had ever been given, including, and this may not strike anybody as radical who wasn't in the room, but for us was very radical two fight scenes, two action scenes that are completely her own. Mm-hmm. That Pierce has nothing to do with whatsoever. Um, and while you can't, you never want to leave your focus from your main character Bond too long, the idea that we would have this good guy who would have their own separate action scenes that, you know, they didn't need Bond to rescue them from was really unique. And so that, you know, it was one of the, I think, major ways we thought, let's see to how far we can push the envelope here while still being Bond. And I should say that role was originally written as a American divorcee who was a salvage expert. Uh, so you you can see how radically it was transformed for
0: Michelle. That is a whiplash there. I'm just trying yeah. to... Yeah. Like every single thing is just <laughs> completely reversed. That's crazy. I'm like, ah, oh, that old chestnut. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The old American divorcee. <laughs> Well, one of the uh, questions I had about Tomorrow Never Dies, and you're right, I'm sure we could go through every single bit of that script and figure out where the choices came in. But actually, the script itself is what fascinates me a little bit with Tomorrow Never Dies because, uh, you know, obviously we get the Firestein involvement the whole way through this time, but there is also that sort of fabled Tomorrow Never Dies writer's assembly or writer's room. And, you know, we've had Nicholas Meyer on the show. He was our first ever guest speaking about his involvement with the film. Uh, Many moons ago now. But just sort of your experience from getting that script, uh, choosing Fighting to come back, having that writer's room, just sort of the process of getting the script for Tomorrow Never Dies.
2: So it was a crazy process and a very fast process Mm. because we were running. The very first treatment was actually done by Donald Mm Westlake. And that was the handover to Hong Kong uh, of Hong Kong approach. Right. We realized for a reason we've already discussed that wasn't working and ultimately we thought and by that point we'd lost some time so we thought we need to move really fast let's bring Bruce back um he understands bond and you know really try to get him to build a script from the ground up and Bruce did Bruce came in and he had a lot of terrific ideas and a lot of terrific sequences. And really the whole idea of Jonathan Price and that character, which was based on someone who's probably not well remembered now named Robert Maxwell, who was essentially a version of Rupert Murdoch. Mm -hmm. In fact, he and Rupert Murdoch were at war over the British ownership of the British tabloids. But Maxwell was also purported to have at times been a spy and died very mysteriously in a drowning. And live this very high, almost Trump-like life that he, you know, smart, but that it was Bruce's idea to create a villain around this Robert Maxwell type of character. And Bruce has a journalism background. You know, he was a newspaper writer. So, really, that whole through line in Tomorrow Never Dies, that's all thanks to Bruce. Meanwhile, though, the clock is ticking, and we got all this great stuff from Bruce. But we also have some things that are still missing pieces that need to be filled in. So we decide to do something which now is actually done frequently on a lot of Hollywood movies, especially blockbusters. But I don't believe it had ever been done on a Hollywood movie before. Maybe it had, but I hadn't heard of it, which was to create a mini writer's room. Mm. It was for one week only. We flew a bunch of different writers to London. And a bunch of different writers who had different strengths in our mind. So we had Nick Meyer, we had Leslie Dixon, we had Kurt Wimmer, we had Dennis Feldman. Um, I I would probably have to go back and look at my notes to see the whole group, but it was about eight, nine writers. Mm -hmm. And Bruce led the room. So Bruce was there, Roger Spottiswood was there. We'd already hired Roger to direct. Barbara, Michael, and myself were there. And it was don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We've got this stuff already. Now, how do we build upon it? How you know what what is going to be the villain's agenda? You know, what are the moments we need between Bond and other characters that will give us something interesting on a character level? What are the sequences we aren't thinking about? It was in that room. That Roger, and it was really, this is Roger Spottiswood's credit, the idea of the car chase in Tomorrow Never Dies emerged because we knew we needed to do something with the car. And one of the things we said to the room was, What do we do with the car? We got to do something with the car. We failed to do it on GoldenEye. What do we do with the car? And Roger came up with the idea of the remote controlled car chase in the parking garage, which I cannot tell you how much resistance that met in certain areas, not with Barbara, Michael, or you know, any of the core group, because there Roger was really clear in his mind about about it had to be a sedan, it had to be Bond in the backseat. And there were certain people at the studio who said, you are essentially emasculating him. To have James Bond riding in the backseat of a sedan <laughs> uh, with a little tiny remote controller, how emasculating. And, of course, from our point of view, it was, no one's ever done a car chase this way before. You know, we've seen a thousand versions of car chases. Let's do something no one's ever seen before. And while it was not a nod to Nintendo, it is, there's a whole generation now of people who understand doing things with remote controls. And that's actually kind of cool to them and fun to them. So let us take our shot. But we had this writer's room. It lasted about a week. A ton of ideas, some of which ultimately ended up in the script, some of which didn't. There's a whole sequence initially in that opening that was pitched in the writer's room where James Bond skis across the wings of the planes that are there on the arms dealership and so forth. And then after the writer's room, what we realized was there was a lot of work to be done with very, very little time. So at that point. David Wilson, who was also one of the people in the writer's room, and Bruce, I may be getting my chronology wrong here. For a while, Nick remained in London, Nick Meyer, and did some work on uh, the script that ultimately didn't, isn't in the final version. But we learned a lot through the process because Nick is a great writer and, and we'll, he made some what we consider wrong turns sometimes you have to make those wrong turns to figure out the right turns Mm -hmm. then we had david wilson either then at the same there at the same time or separately he and bruce both divided up the script and took different portions of it and started writing in parallel on those sections then roger who had worked with a really good writer named Donald Petrie Jr. brought Don in to come, Donald in to come and do some work on the script. And Donald, for example, invented Dr. Kaufman, the Vincent Schiavelli character. Mm. And that whole scene with Dr. Kaufman is thanks to Donald Petrie. And to give you a sense of how far and wide we were um, pulling here, there's a secret history in Bond um, that involves Clive Barker. The reason Fomka Janssen is in GoldenEye is I had just worked on a movie with Clive called Lord of Illusions right. that Fomka started. And the reason we had cast Fomka on Lord of Illusions was because Clive was the, had found her and campaigned incredibly hard to convince us to cast her, which we did. And then of course, once we worked with her in Lord of Illusions, we had, you know immediately turned around and realized she'd be perfect for GoldenEye. Um, At a certain point in Tomorrow Never Dies, we were moving so fast and pulling from so many different places that when we get to the moment when um, Pierce and Michelle are in the high rise with Jonathan Price, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: we knew we had to have a beat where Jonathan Price threatened them with something, but we didn't know what. And so I turned to Clive, and I said, give me something. It's not a thing we're ever going to play out, but something that we can at least get some kind of visual with. And do, do something that feels a little exotic or interesting and not just, you know, the same old stuff. And Clive said, chakra torture. And you kind of like these strange-shaped instruments. I go, Thank you, Clive. Great. So there's a little <laughs> chakra torture beat in there. Again, maybe not the highlight of, well, definitely not the highlight of the movie, but there were so many people contributing in so many ways, large and small we were still writing the script as we were shooting there was a certain point where i think it was by the time we were shooting the motorcycle ch- chase in thailand we it takes place in vietnam but we ended up shooting it in thailand because we got kicked out of vietnam this is a sort of continuing theme with um yeah. on film <laughs> the uh, but uh, when we were shooting we still we knew ricky jay was going to die but we didn't know how and pretty much every cast member at one point or another was coming to us campaigning to be the person to kill Ricky J. <laughs> and, and you know, in terms of my own, there's so many things I love about Tomorrow Never Dies. But you know, one thing the things I think it'll be hard for me to rewatch is the extended ending on the stealth boat, mm. which mm. for me goes on a little too long. But the reason it goes on so long is because by the time we were writing it, we also only had a few weeks left to shoot. <laughs> and it was almost being written as it was being shot. And it never got to go through that screenwriting editing process of paring it down and really making it sit.
1: We interrupt this program to bring you a special report.
0: Red Alert hards. we are shaking
1: things up over on the Patreon page. That's right, we are launching an exclusive new show where we tackle the exploits of the small screen's greatest secret agents like Jack Bauer, George Smiley, and beyond. And don't forget every month
0: you also get two Agents in the Field episodes where we decode the adventures of your favorite spy actors in their biggest non-spy
1: movies. But, Cam, tell the people what we have coming up next catch up with our February offerings over on Patreon. I'm talking about reviews of Vertigo, The Towering Inferno, and the David Hasselhoff, Nick Fury TV movie. What more could you even want in your life? So strap on your Condor Man wings and
0: soar into the future with us over at patreon.com slash
1: But before Big O zaps us with a red pulsating laser, let's get back to the spy jinx. A question I had about behind the scenes as well was uh, Cubby Broccoli wasn't well, as you said, during Goldeneye, but he was a presence. Yes. Was there a real difference behind the scenes going into Tomorrow Never Dies without him?
2: Well, he was definitely missed. But creatively, I think Barbara and Michael deserve the lion's share of credit for Eye. Mm-hmm. And carrying on into Tomorrow Never Dies, creatively, Barbara and Michael were very much there. I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think there was, my guess is that there was probably on an emotional level a little bit of a struggle for them in terms of wanting to respect their father's vision and not muck up what he had done so well while still pushing Bond forward.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. evolving bond and that's always a tricky tension for any franchise let alone when it's your father who you love dearly who created or had a large hand in creating the franchise and the best way I can maybe articulate why I sense this is when Roger came on board one of the things Roger wanted to do was use smoke when he was shooting a lot of the scenes. Now, smoke is often used not, you don't see the smoke as you know, a, a source, but it's used to give a kind of texture and moodiness to a scene in a way that an audience might not necessarily be able to articulate, but it just gives it a look.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And there was a beat when Barbara and Michael questioned whether, that, whether or not we should do that, whether it would be changing the, tr- the look of Bond too much. And after a few days of thinking about it, they came back and decided it was okay to do. And we did use smoke for the first time in a Bond film uh, in shooting some of those scenes. But I think that was probably the trickiest thing about Cubby not being there is instead of having someone who could say, all right, let's go with Pierce, now it was on Barbara and Michael to not only channel their father. But to also make it their own, mm. and they did, and they did, and they've done, it. and they've continued to do it magnificently. But that's that's challenging.
1: And it's interesting that it is on Tomorrow Never Dies, which feels, in some ways, the one that owes the most to kind of the traditions of Bond. Whereas you things you see things get shaken up a little more so, and you go, you know, the world's not enough, and then onwards. Yep. One uh one of my sort of final questions about Toro Never Dies, and just for reference, it's the first one I saw on the big screen,
0: it's one I often go back to. It you know, I, I live close to where the driving sequence was filmed. I've been there and I've driven around it pretending to be James Bond, but luckily not from the backseat, fortunately, folks. <laughs> um but you mentioned uh, Terry Hatcher's Paris Carver character, which is I, I think you mentioned didn't necessarily work as what you wanted it with with the film. Now, I've read stories over the years about what happened on set, different takes on it. From your perspective, what was it about that character that maybe didn't necessarily click or what you were trying to do with it? And, and I know there were some bits that happened on set. What was your sort of take on that when that happened?
2: Um, the scenes between Pierce and Terry were some of the first scenes we shot. Mm. Um the which also means that they'd even have less time script wise to be fully matured. So I would say from the start, our intention was good there, but we never necessarily got those scenes in script format to the place where they were as strong as they should have been. The second thing, which I think you're alluding to, is Pierce and Terry didn't have the greatest relationship on set. They got off on the wrong foot. And I think that shows in the film. One of the things I've learned from working with Pierce, who is phenomenal and one of the most generous actors I've seen, I can tell you endless stories about his generosity towards other performers. But I saw both with Tomorrow Never Dies specifically, and also when I worked with him on Thomas Crown Affair. When he clicks with somebody, it's magical. He and Rene Russo clicked in an incredible way on Thomas Crown Affair. The same was true with him and Michelle Yeoh. I mean, he and Michelle spent pretty much all their time um, when they weren't shooting still together. You know, they'd be going out exploring Bangkok or, you know, throwing parties for the rest of the cast and crew. They, they were thick as thieves. And Roger, and for that matter, took advantage of it. Uh, there's in the motorcycle choice chase, as scripted, Pierce and Michelle come out of the building, uh handcuffed together.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: They jump on the motorcycle, and Pierce drives off. Just before shooting that scene, Roger takes Michelle aside and says, we've um we've rethought the script. You should drive." So when you come out, you 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 jump on the front and you drive. What you see in the film is Pierce genuinely not understanding why Michelle is getting trying to grab the handles of the motorcycle and get in front. He had no idea she was going to do this. She had no idea that it wasn't what she was supposed to be doing and that Pierce didn't know she was supposed to be doing it. Um, I don't think Roger would have tried that with two performers who weren't really sinking but they were sinking so much that you pretty much knew you could throw anything at them and they would just have fun with it Uh and it's one of the things that makes pierce such an interesting bond to me is when he starts to really play with some of the other performers or have real reactions to the other performers and we just couldn't get that between him and Terry, which was a pity because in some ways that was maybe the relationship you most needed it in Right. And I should say Terry was great to work with because from my point of view, Terry was a dream and Mm. we had seen the reason we cast her is certainly she was popular because of Lois and Clark and things like that. Sure. But we would seen her in a little watched Phil Joanneau movie called Heaven's Prisoners. Yep. Where she gave a spectacularly good performance. And so we knew she had the acting chops too. And she was terrific it was just the wrong chemistry
1: and you know the movie is very successful but you of course went up against titanic that year i am curious because obviously tomorrow never dies very beloved bond film big hit at the time but titanic was kind of the story of that year going forward what were the expectations of tomorrow never dies though before you kind of realized you had something like titanic going on concurrently
2: we um John Kelly had left United Artists by this point, and a woman named Lindsay Duran had replaced him. Lindsay and I were very concerned about going up against Titanic. Mm. Word on the street in Hollywood was that Titanic was this incredibly over-budget movie that yeah, you know, was a period piece, and everybody knows the ending of it, and it's a sad ending, and therefore there wasn't a lot of faith amongst the industry. Nonetheless, Lindsay and I were concerned, not the least of which is because we're big James Cameron fans. And I also had um, relatives who went down to the Titanic and have been steeped in Titanic lore all my life and just thought, it's It's, it's a great story. Mm -hmm. So there was a meeting with the marketing folks where we said, we really think we should move our date. We should just let Titanic have that date. And they said, first of all, they said, Jeff. You went to a Vita on Super Bowl Sunday. What do you know? Uh, and it's true, I did see a Vita on Super Bowl Sunday. So, you know, point taken there.
1: Uh, that would have been me too. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, yeah. But the second thing they said is mathematically, it's impossible for Titanic to outperform Bond. It's an over three hour running time. There's only so many screens. There's no way Bond won't be number one. And when it At least within the dynamics of a studio, once you hand the movie over to marketing and distribution, they're the experts and you can campaign as much as you want. Their way goes. Mm. So it opened against Titanic. And yes, it came in number two to Titanic. And Titanic was a juggernaut. And there's no movie probably that could have opened against Titanic and not come in number two. That was a disappointment. The other thing that hit at the same time was there was a financial crisis in Asia. And one place we had really believed that Tomorrow Never Dies was going to play huge was Asia because both the setting and Michelle was already, it was the first time she'd been seen in a Western movie, but she was already a major star in Asia.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: It performed really well in Asia, but it, because of the drop in the in in various currencies in asia compared to the us dollar the dollar box office gross was not quite what we had expected it to be that being said it was still an extraordinary performance it was an extraordinary performance for a movie for MGM UA or really any studio
3: mm-hmm.
2: and it while it we expected even bigger things if it hadn't opened against titanic or there hadn't been a drop in the asian currency value at the same time it was really clear that bond was here to stay and was a very very big deal which again led to the studio saying well you got to have another movie by 1999 To, get to
1: it. <laughs> of course and you talked about how you know tomorrow never dies was in some ways correcting things on gold now you maybe regretted a little was that the case with tomorrow never or with uh, the world is not enough looking back on tomorrow never dies
2: I think the thing that we most wanted to correct, we couldn't, which was to have more time on the script. <laughs>
3: right.
2: Because again, we were rushing for a release date. It, yeah, I, I think if you asked anybody, what is the one thing coming out of Tomorrow Never Dies you wish you could do differently, it was just, we'd like another year, please, to develop this. Really in some ways, I would say World is Not Enough was an attempt to be more experimental. Mm-hmm. And it may also have been um, a chance—the moment when Barbara and Michael now felt confident—and confident maybe is the wrong word. Barbara and Michael have now proven themselves twice mm-hmm. as really great producers, and not in in every way, creatively, production-wise, budget-wise, um, and specifically great producers for Bond.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think a lot of what you see in world is not enough that are interesting swings. Are swings that are thanks to them. It was Barbara who showed up and said, Baku. You know, have you guys ever heard of Baku? And I think pretty much everybody was, no, we don't know what Baku is. And she showed us some documentary about Baku and the oil there and this, you know, I- interesting place that's kind of caught in the crossfire of Eastern Europe and said, wouldn't this be something a little different to set a Bond movie around? Um and we all agreed. And I want to say it was Barbara, and I'm pretty sure it was, who uh, suggested that we have a female villain as our main villain, which I don't think had ever been done before in a Bond film.
1: It's kind of up in the air. You can look at Rosa Klebb in From Russia With Love, but it's, is she the main one? It's yeah, up for debate. It's hard to say.
2: That's why I say I don't think as opposed to had never. Yeah. You, you can debate it. Certainly not with as much um, power and control as Sophie Marceau has. And Mm -hmm. I mean, World is Not Enough took it to another level. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And, you know, I, I think part of it was we were feeling good about having made a really out of the box choice with Michelle Yeoh, which led to Sophie Marceau and Robert Carlyle as let's be let's try to be interesting with our casting and cast really strong we would learned with jonathan price with michelle Yeoh, with judy dench we can cast really strong significant actors mm-hmm. in these roles it's that much more interesting there was also bond and golden eye and m and remember m was just being invented as a woman in golden eye they have a contentious you know relationship you get the mm-hmm. sense that M cares about Bond in terms of a, you know, you come back or come back live, whatever she says to Bond at the end of their first scene in Golden Eye. But you don't necessarily get the sense that Bond has any great love for M. And over the course of those three movies, we were sort of building that relationship and then getting to the point where we're going to say, well, let's put M in danger, which was really a kind of callback to the novel, The Man with the Golden Gun which opens with James Bond seemingly killing him. And um, really, yeah, look, Tomorrow Never Dies has the longest, I think, pre-credit sequence of any Bond film. And there was the questions about whether it could bear that or not. There, there were so many things about Tomorrow Never Dies where, and maybe it was because we knew we had so little time, it was a well, let's roll the dice and see what happens. We've kind of bought ourselves enough goodwill mm-hmm. to take some shots. All right, I don't think tomorrow night, I mean, world is not enough.
0: I, I was, yeah. yeah, I was gonna ask about sort of the expanded M role because she gets a lot more screen time in this, and this is a very female centric Bond film as far as they go from Dr. Christmas Jones the whole way through. um what was it like? That choice came down for getting more Judy Dench. Was it just as simple as that? Let's get more Judy Dench in our film.
2: It gets back to Pierce and I, I think this ends up carrying through with Daniel Craig. Pierce wanted things to be more personal for Bond. Mm. He, he, he wanted people to matter more to Bond. He wanted to be more entangled with people um, than Bond traditionally is. And with Judy Dench, we were all in love with her. So the idea of let's do more with Judy Dench was great. And also, particularly the franchise, you, you at a certain point you ask yourself, what are things the audience doesn't expect because the rules seem so clearly set up that it's going to surprise them? But at the same time, if you do something different, they'll still go with it. And one of those things, which was after so many Bond movies with M always being distant and never being in any real danger, what if we put M in danger? Mm -hmm. It's never been done before, but would the audience rebel against that? Probably not. And would that make things more interesting for Bond, particularly when you have an actor who wants more to play? Absolutely. And, you know, we, we see that happen again with Daniel Craig, the, the putting M in danger, because we, we, I'm not sure we did it as well as we could have. There's a lot about World's Not Enough. I don't think we did as well as we could have. But I think we were starting to try to do some things that maybe in the Craig movies, they were able to then perfect. Mm. But we were first, it was the R&D for a lot of the stuff that was to come later.
1: And I remember sitting in the theater and being totally blown away at the Electra reveal when I saw the movie in theaters. And this is such a different time period for marketing movies was there like legit concern about like giving away the twist because it wasn't necessarily unusual to kind of hint towards a twist in your marketing as opposed to now where they're much more spoiler phobic
2: i don't remember that being the case to be fair in 1999 i was about to leave MGM UA. i had one foot out the door and was trying to orchestrate my departure uh, we had a new administration. Lindsey Duran was no longer there. Frank Nacuso was no longer there. John Cowley was no longer there. And I wasn't enamored with the way things were going. Mm-hmm. So by the time the release of World Is Not Enough came along, my mind was less on, or I was paying a lot less attention to the marketing and a lot more attention to what my fate was going to be.
1: Makes sense.
0: Yeah. Well, then I guess so. maybe talking about more about pre-production on The World is not enough then. Because if you were sort of, things yeah. were changing for you when the film came out. Let's look at what you were part of in, say, 98, which is yeah. what you were working on with the film. Um, one thing that we're big fans of, because we've had Denise Richards on, is Dr. Christmas Jones. And that idea of having this sort of Bond girl stereotype in many ways, but also giving her a lot of agency in the film. She's a doctor. She is sort of the key for a lot of the plot. Um, where did that sort of character come from? What was the sort of motivation, inspiration for, for creating Dr. Jones?
2: We wanted strong, smart women. Mm-hmm. We wanted to have a foot in traditional Bond and a foot in where the world was headed. With Sophie Marceau, we knew we did not have a traditional Bond girl. So we figured we should cast somebody who seems like a more traditional bond girl as a nod to that at the same time we wanted her to be a modern woman for that time to have a real job to have real intelligence um to be somebody who might be underestimated but shouldn't be underestimated i i think i'm correct in saying wild things had just preceded our casting denise Because i believe it was seeing her in wild things that made us say she's really interesting as an actress that there's a lot of different qualities whether it's comedy or dramatic that she can tap into and let's see what would happen if we put her in a bond movie i feel like we did her a disservice and i think that disservice was probably across the board I don't think her character was ever written to the degree it needed to be to give it the complexity we wanted it to have um probably because we had so much focus on sophie marceau's character um i also think that in terms of honestly the way we shot her the way we dressed her everything it was just a perfect storm Mm. of missing the mark and that's one case where I know the critics did kind of go to town on her. And I feel very badly about that because I don't think she deserved that. I think that was just where our intentions were good, but we didn't manage to pull them off the way we should have.
0: Well, you're yeah, diving into a, a sort of a point you raised there. And and one thing that's been clear looking at as we've been sort of tracking these Bond films is you've been a lot of focuses on script, getting the script right. That is key because it's your story. Yeah. This, is, this film signals a change again as well because you had The Writer's Room on Tomorrow Never Dies. Now you've got Fierce and again, but Wade and Purvis entered the picture, which are they're now still part of the franchise. They're probably going to be working on Bond 26 whenever that does happen too, most likely. What was the process of coming up with the script like? Was there any obstacles you overcame? Sort of that, that whole genesis of the script and, and bringing Wade and Purvis into.
2: I wish I could remember why we didn't just start with Bruce because we <clears> should have. <throat> And I don't mean this as anything against Neil and Rob, but I can't think of why we wouldn't have just started with Bruce. But maybe there was a scheduling conflict or something else. Mm-hmm. Um, Purvis and Wade came in. They had made a movie, I think, called Highway Highwaymen or something like that. Um, it was a good script. They pitched on Bond. They had this idea, I think, at the time that they wanted it to be the villain to be focused on the region of the brain that's called the God region, which is where scientists or some scientists believe our need for religion resides. Um, We obviously didn't go with that pitch, but in, you know, in talking with them and engaging in a dialogue with them, it felt like they could be somebody that everybody could collaborate with. And what you may already be getting a sense of is a Bond movie is a very collaborative process. Mm -hmm. Barbara has ideas. Michael has ideas. The director has ideas. Pierce has ideas. Executives like myself, we have ideas and you need writers who can not only bring a lot of their own, but figure out a way to wrangle everybody else's and make it all come together, hopefully. They seemed like they could really do that. And they ended up writing a draft, or maybe two, I don't remember, that sort of laid out what we needed laid out, but didn't have the exact pizzazz we were looking for, which is when we brought Bruce back in because the GoldenEye thing. Yeah, yeah. Bruce understood this world, he understood these characters, and we were again under the gun we we Mm -hmm. didn't have time to teach somebody how to get there if they could we just had to have somebody who knew how to get there and could just go straight out the gate
1: right and i had a question sort of bond adjacent but tied to your era which was um you had spoken in uh i believe mark altman's book nobody does it better about how at one point you were considering spin-offs for wylin or dr kaufman as well i would just love to know was there ever a treatment? Was there ever any sort of preliminary work done? Or was it just kind of ideas floating around?
2: So there there were a bunch of things. Um, I I had been obsessed with Hong Kong cinema since before coming to MGM UA. I'd, I'd actually worked on a project that David Byrne was going to direct of The Talking Heads. Wow. And David Byrne had taken me to a revival of Jackie Chan movies at a local theater in L.A. I'd never seen a Jackie Chan movie before that, and one of them was um, Police Story Three, which had uh-huh. Michelle in. Yeah. Once I got to MGM UA, I continued to try to do stuff with Hong Kong cinema, including putting a project in development with Wong Kar Wai and other stuff. But I went on a trip to Hong Kong, and I array- and I reached out to try to meet with Michelle. Michelle, however, ended up in the hospital after having taken a fall doing a stunt and I never met with her. A little while later, she comes to Los Angeles. She says, do you still want to meet? I say, sure. She comes in. She is absolutely delightful. And it's after that, that when I show up in the Ian offices one day and say, hey, what about If we used a Hong Kong martial arts star and suggest Michelle and Roger Spottiswood had heard of Michelle because I think he'd had a relative who was a big fan of hers. And so Roger liked the idea. And as you already can tell, Barbara and Michael definitely were up for doing something interesting with women in Bond movies. Mm. So they liked the idea and we were off and running. The reason I give you all this preamble is After Tomorrow Never Dies my fandom for Michelle was even stronger than it was before. So we did propose doing a spinoff with Waylon. As you've probably noticed, there generally aren't really many Bond spinoffs. And ultimately, Barbara and Michael just didn't feel like they had the bandwidth for that, particularly knowing we had to get World Is Not Enough going in 1999. Mm -hmm. So we actually developed a separate project for Michelle um with a writer named mitch markowitz which was going to be about a comedian who tours internationally and has a bodyguard but what he doesn't know is that his bodyguard is actually a secret agent which was going to be played by michelle <laughs> uh, and, and i actually think that script i can't remember if the script ultimately got written or not but by the time if it got written by the time it was in any shape to potentially get made, administrations had changed at MGMUA and that moment had passed. Simultaneously, yes, we did talk about a Dr. Kaufman prequel, the story of Dr. Kaufman before he gets to facing off with Bond, which Donald Petrie was going to write. But once again, because of the rushed world is not enough, Barbara and Michael didn't feel like they had the bandwidth for that. So it never happened.
1: That is an amazing sounding project. And in an alternate universe, I would have loved to have seen it. (laughs) Well, Jeff, I think before we move on to other projects,
0: I just kind of want to ask sort of a holistic question about your time working on James Bond, because as you said, your experience with Bond started watching Bond films as a kid. You loved the franchise and that love came into your work and you managed to actually bridge that gap of doing something you enjoy, which is a wonderful thing. Looking back on your time with James Bond, what's sort of your fondest memory of sort of working on those films?
2: Yeah, you know, I hate the sort of, uh, or I, I will say, as the only question yours you've asked, I've hated. I hate the question something, <laughs> something, it's fine. something down to one thing you love. Like, <laughs> okay. if you ask me to name my favorite opera, it's easy. I don't love a lot of operas, so it's really simple. Mm. If you ask me to name my favorite movie, it's really hard because the reason I'm in the movie business, there's so many movies I love. And with Bond, it is really difficult to, you know, even come up with a top 10 favorite moments. It it, it is definitely a highlight of my career to have, have worked on them. It is also exhausting. And I, yeah, when by the time we were making world is not enough i was ready for a break i i think and, and you know there's a reason that with the daniel craig movies there's a little more space generally put yeah. between them and because you need that time to refresh it's kind of like one slice of chocolate cake is fantastic but if you're forced to eat the whole cake over and over and over again it gets a little hard but on any given movie there there were a lot of highlights because you kind of get to live the life of James Bond while you're not just making them, but while you're researching them, you know, while you're plotting them out. It's an amazing experience. And the world also loves James Bond so much. It's mm. a story of Bruce fierstein first coming to London to work on GoldenEye, and he gets to passport control. And the general rule of thumb most of us were told was when they say, are you here for business or pleasure? Just say pleasure. Because if you say business, it's going to open you up to a world of pain where you're going to be asked endless questions. Bruce didn't know this. The passport control person says business or pleasure. Bruce says business. Immediately, the passport control person straight (laughs) up says Oh what, what 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 is your profession? Bruce says I'm a writer. You know, well why are you coming here? Well I'm coming here for some meetings. What are you coming to work? You have to meet about? Well a movie. What movie are you coming to work on? Bruce says the new James Bond movie at which point the customs agent bursts into a smile, stamps Bruce's passport and says, "Well, you <laughs> take good care of our James." Oh wow. And there's no other movie I've ever worked on where everywhere Well, not everywhere, but pretty much everywhere you go in the world, you're met with that kind of excitement and welcome. Mm -hmm. So it it really is an extraordinary experience while you're doing it.
1: And once you'd moved on and, you know, Die Another Day moves forward, was there ever a sense of like kind of the regret of not being there? Or were you just happy to be a Bond fan again, just seeing the movies?
2: I was excited to be a Bond fan again. I mean, there's, there's something still thrilling about seeing a Bond movie and not knowing what I'm about to see. And being surprised, um, you can't help but be a little bit of a backseat driver. In you know, in terms of oh, huh, that's an interesting choice, um, or oh, wow, I wish I'd been around for when they did that because that would have been really interesting <laughs> to do, or oh, that's really surprising. I'm kind of envious they came up with that. So it you know, and, and I think having been involved for six years with a bond. It's hard not to feel all the all of that. But mainly, I'm just thrilled that the franchise keeps going.
0: Yeah. Well, I think then drifting off of James Bond and onto other things, one of the things that fascinated me looking at sort of your credits uh, is, is, is a film that Cam and I both love. And that is The Man from UNCLE. Um, now, you've got a, a story by credit on that film. So I, I, I kind of want to hear your story of The Man from Uncle. How did you get involved and what work did you sort of do on the film?
2: Well, first, I want to point out you know, there's a bond connection with The Man from Uncle. So Napoleon Solo first appears in the book Goldfinger. Right. And originally, when The Man from Uncle was being looked at as a television series, ian fleming was going to be involved there was a deal made with ian fleming when cubby Broccoli heard about this he wasn't happy about ian fleming taking a character uh, uh, even though it's a insanely minor character from a bond book and doing something separate from bond so fleming sold the rights to napoleon solo for one dollar to the people who were creating the TV series and then had nothing more to do with it oh. but in many ways and by the I should say when I got involved in man from Uncle I didn't know this until I started to research man from Uncle but I was in I, I, it, it, it's a, a strange coincidence so I happened with man from Uncle is I got a call one day from an executive at Warner Brothers named Lynn Harris Lynn asked if I'd come in and meet with her and i said sure and i came in and i would known lynn off and on for ages and lynn said i you know i know you worked on the jack ryan franchise and on bond and on thomas crown affair we've been trying to break man from uncle we've been trying to figure out a way to make a movie out of it for a couple decades we haven't been able to do you have any ideas i knew nothing about man from uncle other than the title i'd never seen the tv series and I said, I don't, but I'm willing to watch the series and read the scripts you've already got in case something sparks. And she said, sure. So I was sent all the DVDs of the TV series. I was sent all the scripts that had been written by a lot of great writers, Requiem Fakara, the Thomas Brothers, um, I think John Hodge. I mean, a lot of people have written versions of Man from Uncle. And I started to watch the TV series, which is um, it's wild. Richard Donner was directing episodes of the TV series.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, the three seasons, I think there were only three seasons, they're kind of like the trajectory of the Roger Moore Bonds, where they start out somewhat grounded, but by season three, you have Kirioken riding missiles like out of Doctor Strange <laughs> Love. Where <laughs> it's it, you know, it it just it goes to such extremes. And I read each one of these scripts, and it's the value of other people, of having people precede you. Every one of these scripts was a joy to read. And in my mind, every one of these scripts, in one way or another, didn't work. And it was like this roadmap. I wish I could have this with every project, of all the different things you can try that are the wrong way to do it. And as I was doing it, I started to formulate, thanks to all of that, well, Maybe there's a way to do it that would work that would be X, Y, and Z. So I went back to Lynn and I said, I think I know why it hasn't worked so far. And I think I know a way that could work. And I pitched her the story. Mm -hmm. And she loved it and said, you know, would you want to write it? because I had done some writing at that point in television and a little early work on Hotel Transylvania and whatnot. And I said, sure, although I had just taken a job as the producing partner of a director named David Dobkin, um, I, you know, I, I would love to, because I pretty much had the story in my head at this point, mm-hmm. um, but I want to bring in someone to write it with me because I actually have a job that I need to be responsible for. And you'll notice sure. if you watch the movie that David Dobkin has a producing credit on the movie, which was really him lending my services, you know, as a writer to the movie. So I called up David Wilson, who worked on Tomorrow Never Dies, and also did a little uncredited work on Thomas Crown Affair. And I'd really been working with in one way or another since I'd been at Paramount and asked him if he wanted to write it with me. And he said, absolutely. And he's he's probably one of the most underrated h- writers in hollywood he's just a superb writer and we ended up writing script and did a couple drafts for warner brothers and eventually warner brothers said we love this we want to make it and they sent it to steven Soderbergh, and soderberg came on board and soderberg there the most dangerous moment for a writer in Hollywood is when the director comes on board. Mm. There's a lot of reasons for this. I think unconsciously the director wants to know that they've got a writer who's beholden to them, not to the studio, um, or they want to make it their own. Or as is the case with, I think, Steven Soderbergh, there are some writers who he has a shorthand with, who he feels Mm -hmm. he shares a voice with. So he brought on Scott Burns, who is a writer who he's made a number of movies with. And I think, Has a shorthand with. And Scott did his version of the draft. And Soderbergh, you know, was casting it with the rumors were, and I was not involved directly. So I was just hearing it secondhand with Clooney and possibly Brad Pitt. And then again, rumors, there were budget issues or disagreements between Soderbergh and Warner Brothers, and it all fell apart. And at that point, and again, I'm not in the room. So this is all third hand. Yeah. I hear that Warner still loves the project and they end up sending David and my script, not Scott's script, because I guess they thought it was too specific to Soderbergh or maybe it was too big a budget. Um, although ours was a very big budget. Ours started in Cuba and goes through Europe and ends in South Africa. Um, the uh, They ended up, I believe, going to Doug Lyman. And then they go to Guy Ritchie, who they have a deal with, who was on the lot and had done Sherlock Holmes for them. And Guy comes on board. And Guy is certainly one of those directors who tends to, I think, write or at least do passes on everything himself because he really has a specific voice as a director. and mm-hmm. his producing partner, Lionel Wigram, Wig- 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 do their version of the script. And they go make the movie. And as a writer at this point, you're pretty much in the dark and so Dave and I were thrilled that Guy Ritchie had come on board we were incredibly excited but we weren't we never read his draft until the movie was in post-production and where when they had to sort of legally show it to us and when we saw the cut which they also had to show us in post-production It was one of the strangest experiences of my life that I I, I can only equate to you have a child who is whisked away a day after they're born. And 20 years later, you meet them again. And they've got your eyes. They've got your coloring. They have your features. You know instantly this is your child. They clearly share DNA here. And you go to shake their hand and they bow to you and you say hello and they respond back in Japanese. And you suddenly have this realization that this is your DNA, but the culture, culturally, they couldn't be more different from you. They have just been nurtured in their own way, which is different than the way you would have nurtured them. Mm. It's not better, it's not worse, it's just different. And it took me two viewings to get my head to sort of let go of my version of man from uncle and embrace guy Ritchie's version. Mm. I, yeah. I, I certainly can see how his couldn't exist without what David and I wrote. While at the same time, there's no question he fully made it his own.
1: Is there any like scenes or moments that jump out that you're like, that's my kind of moment there. Or a moment you're very proud of that made it through.
2: Well, I think, yeah, I, I would almost rather do there the moments that Guy Ritchie put in that I wish we had. But um <laughs> yeah, but there are there's a lot of different a lot of the beats are similar, mm-hmm. but he did them in different ways. So the whole Alicia Vikandra character was a character that we created. And mm-hmm. the whole idea of Solo and Kiriokin having these. Which may seem obvious, but it wasn't because it didn't exist in any of the prior drafts or the TV series, these differing ideologies mm-hmm. where they really dislike each other. Um, I mean, in David and my original pitch, was we begin with a nuclear bomb and end with a peace sign, um, you know, was really important. And the uh you know, the idea that she was the daughter of a Nazi scientist was ours. But what he does starting in Berlin, our first sequence was set against the cuban missile crisis and in cuba and has a very different feel to it where he goes to egypt at the end what we did for our sort of third act of the movie was go to south africa because it was during the raw and set it During the initial rise of the ANC and this world of apartheid, Mm -hmm. because we thought nobody's ever done, well, I shouldn't say nobody's ever done. We didn't know of a really interesting spy thriller from the 60s set against the backdrop of apartheid South Africa. So it felt to us like, oh, we can do something different and unexpected here. Mm -hmm. The whole Italian thing comes out of the fact that I love La Dolce Vita. Um, La Dolce Vita is an insanely important movie to me for a whole bunch of other reasons. And so we were were obsessed with doing something in Rome, La Dolce Vita style. You know, and again, essentially meshing a spy movie with it. But what Guy Ritchie does with it is very different than what we did with it. Mm -hmm. So it, it is this odd experience where I can say, oh, here's all these things that, I know why we originally put them in there, but now they're being used in a way that's very different than we intended, which is fine, because that's his prerogative. Mm-hmm.
0: And just sort of like looking at The Man From U.N.C.L.E. as a franchise, because you you were the sort of part of the team that brought it to the big screen, really. Uh, it obviously had its adaptations in the 60s. But do you think the franchise has a future, be it on television or in cinema?
2: Um, well. Not in its current form.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, you know, we we all now have enough sense of Hollywood history to know that something can be made, not be successful in the moment, and then ten years later, twenty years later, somebody makes a new version of it and it takes off. But the movie did not succeed commercially. Mm-hmm. It it I it wasn't a horrible flop, and. It's it's a half. I, I get tremendous pleasure because it seems there are a lot of people around the world who are fans of it because it's astonishing to me how many. Thank you. How many people pop up and say you worked on the Man from Uncle? Uh, and sometimes I think, well, what about those other movies? But yeah, the Man from Uncle is a big <laughs> deal for for a bunch of people. Um, clearly, Arnie Hammers had a difficult time since uh-huh. the movie came out. So, I. I do believe there's a great man from uncle movie to be made that could launch a franchise but unfortunately for probably 20 different reasons this movie wasn't the one that's going to launch it. Mm. Um you know it's it's an interesting issue with Hollywood which is this obsession with IP.
3: Sure. Mm-hmm.
2: And man from uncle is IP It's a name that people sort of say, Oh, I met, and I'm going to say before the movie came out, they're kind of like, Yeah, I think I've heard of that. What is it? Um, But it wasn't IP that had this big passionate fan base. Mm -hmm. It It had a small passionate fan base, but a big passionate fan base. So it, I will admit, it, initially struck me as odd that warner's was so obsessed with doing something with it simply because of the name because i wasn't sure how much traction you get out of that name that being said i was thrilled that they did because the idea of getting to write a uh, spy thriller set in the 60s that's really fun and has a kind of Nanochka quality of you know ideology versus ideology is was a joy
0: and in terms of sort of connecting to your original love of spy movies, James Bond, that's like coming full circle in a way, writing that film. Yeah. Okay, Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure. We've uh, we've dived deep into the treasures of the Brosnan era of James Bond and The Man from UNCLE, but um, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up for today. But I have a couple of quick questions before we let you go. First and foremostly, what is it you're currently working on that you can sort of share with us?
2: I... Just a few months ago, took over the position of CEO of Bold Films. You may or may not have heard of Bold, but Bold has made some movies you most likely have heard of because they're really great. Whiplash, Nightcrawler, Drive, The Guilty. So I'm just beginning this next stage of my career, but hoping that in the next year or two, I'll be able to help continue the tradition of Bold, making really interesting director star driven movies that hopefully feel like touchstones for other movies that follow
1: very nice very nice and those are all that's a terrific slate and uh i look forward to seeing what they do as well in the future yeah hopefully you can sneak a spy thriller in there or
0: something yeah
2: you better believe there are already some i'm thinking about
1: <laughs> hey that's a tease because you are kind of the lucky charm for launching spies you know bond jack ryan Man from Uncle. So who knows, right?
2: Uh, I will say that there are some good spy thriller franchises out there that nobody has touched for a very long time. And uh, mm. I, I hope to make the most of that.
0: Cough, cough. Modesty Blaze. Cough,
2: cough. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, th- that becomes a whole other podcast.
0: Uh, uh, okay.
2: We could go down the Modesty Blaze route. But really, at this point, Modesty Blaze is kind of impossible to get made.
0: I can understand that.
2: And I don't mean even culturally. But I just mean in terms of the rights and people oh, OK, and state and everything else. It's, it's very difficult.
0: Hmm. Okay, well then, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do there in your position. Hopefully you'll have time for us in the future for round two. If you're not too busy, we'll, 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 we'll plot some time out. But the final question, this has been asked everyone that's been on this show, right back to Nicholas Meyer on the very first interview. Jeff Clement. what is your favorite spy movie of all time?
2: I'm even having trouble deciding what my definition of a spy movie is.
0: Don't worry, we we have trouble. (laughs)
2: Um, because there's movies involving spies, like let's say Mm -hmm. North by Northwest, but Cary Grant is not a spy in North by Northwest, and it doesn't necessarily feel like a spy movie.
1: Uh, It does count.
2: Yeah um it's really hard not to have north by northwest as a favorite movie the you know if you go hardcore spy i have to say recently i was really impressed by both munich and bridge of spies in the last couple decades Mm-hmm. But you can go back to things like Man Who Came In from the—I mean, Spy Who Came in from the Cold—which is not only a great book but a great movie. Gosh, it's hard. I, it, you know, and I'm trying to avoid mentioning any movie I've ever worked on. So, <laughs> yeah, it, I, yeah, I don't like that question one bit.
1: <laughs> well, you've given a uh, amazing collection there, though. That uh, no one could go wrong picking any one of those titles. <laughs> I I think
0: we've, uh, that's actually a pretty good uh, triple bill of film by the sounds of it. I I would go to that that film screening of all those back to back.
2: Yeah, I I mean, it only just crossed my mind saying it that Steven Spielberg was involved with two of them. And I don't know, Hmm? I actually, if you had asked me if, if I associate Steven Spielberg with spy movies, it wouldn't have been the first thing that comes to mind. But now I realize he's made two of what I think are the best of recent years.
1: Yeah. And then even the Indiana Jones is a response to James Bond. So, yeah. yeah, Spielberg's connections are a little stealthy.
2: Well, he always wanted to make a James Bond movie. At one point, John Callie and I had lunch with him and he talked about that.
1: Oh, wow. When we,
0: when, we had, uh, when we had John Glenn on years ago, he said his favorite spy movie was Indiana Jones, uh, the first one. So I was like, well, if, if John Glenn's going to say that's a spy movie, then I guess it counts.
2: I, I, I guess so. I'll give it that.
0: Yeah, but uh, I'll take those answers, Jeff. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been nothing but uh, cordial and insightful, and I genuinely thank you for your time.
2: It was my pleasure. It was fun to
0: walk down memory lane. Thank you, sir.
2: And relive bye. <laughs> bye.
0: Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat with Mr. Jeff Cleeman. Oh, boy. A lot to talk about, but firstly, I just want to say thank you to Jeff for taking almost two hours of his day to take us through such a momentous time in James Bond history, to take us through the processes, the creative decisions around that time, and really give us the nitty gritty about what happened in the 1990s of James Bond.
1: Oh, this was an embarrassment of riches, and we were really lucky to get Jeffrey Cain to come on the show in the past, as well as Nicholas Meyer, to give us kind of that insight into the script processes of Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies. Mm-hmm. But, like, this was like an insider's view of not just Goldeneye, not just Tomorrow Never Dies, but also the world is not enough. And there was just so many details here. You know, finding out about Clive Barker's involvement in a key scene of Tomorrow Never Dies with the chakra torture. Like, i never heard that, and I've Googled it since. It ain't out there. So... We're very happy to add this one to kind of the canon of Bond knowledge out there. But also just finding out about the spinoffs for Y-Lin and Dr. Kaufman that were in development. All these little details that he was able to comment on were just, I mean, I was beside myself.
0: Yeah, this is a, a real, uh, I think you said embarrassment of riches at the start of the episode. This is the episode for Bond fans. If you want to know more about this era, I will always point people to this interview now. Jeff gave us so much to chew on. There's probably enough to go back and listen to it again because there's just so much information in there to absorb. And we hope you all had a good time listening to it and learned a few things about one of the most pivotal times in James Bond history. I mean, you spoke about sort of the Clive Barker stuff there. For me, it was learning more about Goldeneye, like the search for a director pre-Martin Campbell, the sort of machinations that happened there. And I knew about some of the casting issues that were going into Goldeneye, but, you know, I'd never... Maybe this is out there, but I'd never know much about you know Mel Gibson or or Liam Neeson being mentioned for the role. And you know, thinking about it now, I'm glad we ended up where we did. But there is an alternate universe, and we live in a world of multiverses now, where Mel Gibson was in Tomorrow Never
1: Dies. Yeah, and not only did he explain you know about Mel Gibson being up for the role and being considered, but why it wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing. It's like a lot of interviews or even, you know, books you'll read or whatever will give you kind of the information, oh, so-and-so is up for the role. But what I loved about this interview with Jeff was that he explained why it didn't work on paper ultimately and why Pierce Brosnan was the right person. It's the kind of insight there, details, and insider knowledge that just made all of these sort of anecdotes and stories that much richer.
0: Yeah, and, and I think, you know, fans of this particular era and, you know, you guys know, listeners, long-time listeners will know, cards on the table, Brosnan was my entry drug to Bond. He brought me into the fold. So fleshing out the story surrounding his uh, you know, bringing into the fold and the evolution of his subsequent sequels just made me appreciate what was going on more and, and, and how fortunate they were that these films were successful and turned out so
1: well because of all these machinations you know, going on behind the scenes. It could have easily derailed any other production totally and it was also interesting to hear him talk about the man from uncle film a movie we Mm. covered very early on in the show and you know being someone who was involved on that script for quite a while and having it ultimately pass into steven soderbergh's hands and then being rewritten and that was a project that was in development for a long time before the guy Ritchie movie finally arrived and so his kind of experiences hearing him talk about seeing the movie and being like well I recognize this, but this is entirely different than what I remember kind of creating. Like, it's not the same energy that I was creating. I thought that was just a really interesting anecdote from the point of view of a writer seeing what happens when their script is developed and changed over time and then seeing the finished product.
0: Which is something we've discussed with writers in the past who have done like the first bit of the story like a brandon bragger a recent guest is a good example of that him and his writing partner ronald d moore did the story treatment for mission impossible 2 that was eventually handed over and and rewritten into what we now know as mission impossible 2 but you know it must be very weird as a writer to see these concepts that you've come up with sort of be distorted uh, in a good or a bad way depending on the outcome uh, into someone else's vision A, a very odd experience but again this is information that I'm guessing is not that well known. So for fans of the man from uncle movie, well, the 2015 movie, this is really great stuff. And it was also interesting to hear, like, is there a future for the man from uncle on the big screen? Seems like that's more of a question mark than we'd like to hear, but you
1: know, there's always possibilities. And Jeff has also said, you know, in his new job going forward, that he'll be looking at potential spy franchises or spy projects. So, um, You know, given this guy's pedigree, I am very excited to see what the future could hold.
0: And, you know, there's still a few more spy movies that he's worked on that we didn't even tap into in this conversation. So, uh, you know, Jeff's already said he's happy to come back and speak about stuff like The Hunt for Red October and Star Trek 60 Undiscovered Country as well. And both films that Cam and I love. So, you know, hopefully we hear more from Jeff in the future. Definitely. And uh, speaking of the man from UNCLE. Cam, I think I'm going to throw the question to you because I think this
1: opens up a bit of a a new era for us. That's right. We are going to kick off our coverage of the Men From U.N.C.L.E. films, which were um, extended episodes of the TV show that were shown theatrically back in the 60s. So we are going to start it off with 1964's To Trap a Spy, which is an expanded version of the pilot for The Man From U.N.C.L.E., originally called Solo, and I am very much looking forward to embarking on some adventures with Robert Vaughn.
0: Yeah, it's, it's something that we haven't really been able to explore because in our minds for a long time, The Man From U.N.C.L.E. was relegated to a TV show, but when we discovered that they actually were released theatrically, that is our qualifier basically to be on the list of films, and there are Eight of them. Mm -hmm. So our mission now is, you know, every couple of months we're going to look at one of these uncle films and bring on some interesting guests along the way. Maybe some interviews if we can get them to. And, you know, Cam mentions to trap a spy. One of the interesting things about that film is one of the co-stars is Luciana Pelluzzi. Before she ever did Thunderball, uh, you know, pre-Thunderball, Fiona Volpe. Interesting. Very interesting. Post-Muscle Beach Party. Of course. Uh, Well it doesn't get any better than that does it it really doesn't (laughs) but there you go folks your mission should you choose to accept it is to join us as we tackle the very first man from uncle film 1964's to trap a spy honestly I can't wait to tackle this one and tuck into it I want to again thanks Jeff for his time and I want to thank you all for listening if you liked what you heard on this episode please consider supporting us over on our patreon you get a bunch of bonus episodes and of course our thanks you helping keep the lights on here at spyhard's hq Because independent podcasting is not cheap and we are paying a lot to get these episodes to you for free every week. So if you have the spare dollar to the side and you want to just do one month and get the whole back catalogue of episodes, you're more than welcome to do so. We're happy to have you over on the Patreon, patreon.com slash spyhards. And make sure you follow us discreetly, as always, on social media at spyhards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. But until next week, folks, Cam and I will be searching the multiverse for that long-lost Dr. Kaufman film.
3: Mm